This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. The season one, as I've mentioned multiple times, the podcast is a project. It is also an experiment that we're running. And in season one, as we were trying to mess with the format a little bit and see if we could make it user-friendly, we tried on a couple episodes to keep things shorter. Uh, And then we made a commitment after season one that we don't care about shorter. If if it's too long, you don't have to listen. But we want to do things long. So one of the things that I didn't like that happened in season one upon reflection was that in an effort to keep things short, we split up an interview with Scott Klusendorf into two different uh, episodes. And upon reflection, I decided I would never do that again. You can just decide you don't want to listen for an hour and a half if I do an hour and a half interview, but I'm going to do hour and a half interview. I'm going to do two hour interview. If somebody wants to talk for three hours and I think they're saying something worth saying, I'm going to do that. But I'll never, ever again split an interview in half. So in order to correct that, what I want, what we're going to do right now is we're going to release this as a special set aside video, uh, a special side audio file, whatever. This is going to be an episode to fix a mistake that I made at the end of season one. I want the Scott Klusendorf interview to exist as one long interview where it can be found in one place all by itself. So here it is, uh, my discussion with Scott Klusendorf of Life Training Institute, where he talks about the three things that he thinks are most important for pro-life people to understand in the post Dobbs versus Jackson post or the Dobbs versus Jackson world, the post Roe v. Wade world and all of its entirety and uh, hopefully fixing what was a, a silly mistake on my part, because this is long form. That's what we do. And we're going to be long if it has to be long and we're not going to apologize for it. And what Scott said, the feedback that I got from everybody that listened to both episodes was how much they loved both of them. And they wished that it could have just been, one. So here it is, uh, the great Scott Klusendorf and I having a conversation in all of its entirety there. In its entirety. All of its entireties were pivoted this silly. In its entirety. Okay. Welcoming Scott Klusendorf to our three things segment this week. Scott Klusendorf is the president and founder of Life Training Institute. By my mind, the single greatest communicator of the pro-life view working today. Uh, he's been my mentor, my friend, I'm honored to have him on the show, and he's going to share with us three things that are important for the audience, our pro-life audience, to know today. Jay, good to be with you. Oh, oh, thank you for joining us. Glad to do it. So here are my three things. I'm just going to lay them out there on the table, and then we'll dive in. Outstanding. First idea, prudence is not compromise. Second idea, inconsistency is not refutation. Third idea, human rights require human beings. And I think all three of these ideas are in play right now in the culture, and pro-lifers need to be clear on both of those, or all three of those concepts. And if we're not, we're going to miss it at the worldview level. So let's take that first one, that prudence is not compromise. There are two uh, battlefronts going on within the pro-life movement right now, and both of them potentially are damaging to our efforts to save children. The first civil war battle we're having is on our left flank with people who say we got to be whole life. If we're not taking on every life issue under the sun, we're not being pro-life, and therefore we're inconsistent and uh, our credibility goes out the window. We're also getting attacked on our right flank from people like abolitionists and others who say that unless we uh, prosecute women for murder, our entire case collapses biblically and intellectually. 
And both those ideas are deeply problematic to our side, but I want to focus on the attack that's coming from our right flank, the idea that if we're prudent in our legislation proposals, we're somehow being compromised. And I don't believe that for a moment. The argument is going that if you don't support prosecuting women for murder, if abortion is outlawed, then you have no biblical ground to stand on. And the only reason you're doing that is because you want to continue to profit from abortion as a pro-life advocate, figure that out. Yeah. Or, or uh, they say you're just willing to provide legal cover for murderers. What they totally ignore is that we may have moral and prudential reasons for not wanting to push prosecution at this point. And those reasons need to be answered, not merely dismissed as being compromised. For example, in order to prove that you've got a woman that deserves to be prosecuted for murder, for abortion, if you're going to prove a criminal conspiracy here, you have to prove that there's been what we call a meeting of the minds. And you know what that is, Jay, but a lot of people don't. That means you have to prove in court of law in front of a jury that her understanding of the Abortion Act matches exactly the doctor's understanding of the act. And if they don't match, the whole case gets thrown out, including the case against the abortionist who did the abortion. So recognizing that that is a high hurdle that almost no prosecutor is going to be able to overcome, pro-lifers have historically prosecuted the abortionist, but not the woman the way they would prosecute the doctor. And some people think that's inconsistent, and that means we're not biblical or moral because we won't prosecute her for murder but I'm not persuaded by that at all. And the reason is not only for the meeting of the minds uh, problem, but think about it culturally for a moment. Jay, since the Dobbs decision back in June of last year, pro-lifers have lost every yeah. single time abortion has been put to the public for a vote. And by the way, we just lost another one yep. yesterday in uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, where a pro-abortion judge got the seat, and that's gonna tip that court now to where it's gonna be promoting abortion wholesale. And when we come in and say, hey, we're gonna push a bill that says we're gonna prosecute women for murder, when the culture already believes we hate women and want them to die, in what possible world is that a good bill to put forward? Set aside the moral conditions for a moment, just think prudentially. Is yep. it a good idea to convince, to you know, further convince the culture we hate women and want them to die and we're out to punish them, isn't our goal to stop abortion? If we can stop abortion by protecting the unborn legally, why are we doing something that just reinforces the culture's myth that we want women to die? And the sad reality is a lot of these abolitionists and others on our right flank are pushing a bill that they're just giddy about. I'm just shocked at how happy they are that they're gonna have the prospect of prosecuting women for murder. I, I don't know what they're thinking in terms of what world they're operating in that this is going to help save babies. Yeah. It's not going to help save babies. Then you've got another problem. Juries, judges, and prosecutors, just because the law says abortion is murder, doesn't mean they're going to prosecute women no. that way. And you're not going to get convictions on this. They're going to rightly say, wait a minute, for 50 plus years, women have been told that abortion is a positive good, legally protected, a constitutional right. And now you're going to assume that they're going to just start thinking rightly about this? That's crazy to say that we're gonna prosecute a woman for premeditated murder 
when everything in the culture has told her abortion's a good thing. And by the way, our churches have largely been silent, so they haven't helped either. Uh, and now we're going to just turn right around and prosecute women for murder. That's just crazy. And jur jurors are going to say no way. Our job should be to go after the source. Let's go get the guy who's doing the abortion and prosecute him. He knows what he's doing. Now, I've had people push back and say women know exactly what they're doing. There has been a meeting of the minds. Well, there's been a meeting of the minds in that the woman and the doctor agree on the abortion. But there's yeah. not a meeting of the minds in terms of what that procedure entails, the intents behind it, and all of that. Uh, for example, Warren Hearn in his book, which I had right here, I have right here, Warren Hearn's book, Abortion Practice. This is, you have this, this is the medical teaching book yeah. that teaches doctors how to perform dismemberment abortions. He says right here on page 135 that a Doppler should be used to measure fetal heartbeat during the abortion to make sure you, you, you can hear it stop so you know you got a dead kid. But he says that Doppler should be inaudible to the patient. On page 155, he talks about using ultrasound to uh, help with the abortion procedure, but that it should be turned toward the operator, not the woman. Now, in what possible world then can we say that the woman knows what the doctor knows when the doctor who's performing the abortion writes in a procedural manual, make sure she doesn't know what is going on? These are the kinds of things that are hurdles for us, and we're pushing very foolish bills. And the question I love to ask abortion or uh, abolitionist is this. Suppose a bill were put forward that protected all unborn humans from conception. In other words, abortion is banned from conception. But there was a provision that said women would not be prosecuted for murder. Would you let those babies die that could have been saved simply because you can't prosecute the aborting mothers for murder? And they don't like that question. They dodge it or otherwise try to avoid answering it. And I think it's a fair question. What are we out here? Are we out to save the children? That should be what we're doing. Instead, we're getting hung up on a bill that isn't going to help us culturally, isn't going to help us promote pro-life bills. If you're a pro-life politician and you're already taking heat for standing for pro-life, are you going to want to risk your career by pushing a bill that says, hey, we can prosecute women for murder who have abortions? I mean, in what real world is that yeah. going to work? So it's that's idea. It's I mean, never worked. We look at history, and and, um, and I, we had Leah Savis, the co-author yeah. of the story of abortion in America, when she came on, and she and I talked about this idea. Even there was a period where abortion was condemned by the public, morally condemned by the public, and illegal. It was against the law, and even yep. under those conditions, it was incredibly difficult to ever successfully prosecute on the issue of abortion. It and is a exactly is a very difficult thing to get, and it's that's one of the things I think the people who, or at least in my experience, because I, I have seen this group grow. There was a time when, when I worked at LTI with you and we would engage and it felt like there was a small group of people that held this view. Since Dobbs vs. Jackson, that group has grown and I interact with a lot more of them. And it includes now, you know, people like Abby Johnson, who is, who is pushing this point of view as well, who, who said she would never at one point, I think, has, has completely flipped now and yes, said that right. she supports it. Um, and so as I was talking to a pastor, a friend of mine and a person who I have had a lot of lovely conversations with, and he has adopted this viewpoint and his position is one of personal virtue in his mind. As I talked to him, he said, I have to, in order to be morally consistent, push for the full prosecution 
of murder in the case of abortion against a woman, because if, if not, then I don't believe, that's his view, then I don't believe, or I'm not acting as if I genuinely believe that they're actually human beings being lost. If I don't do this, then I can't possibly call myself fully pro-life. In the same way you mentioned from the left, if you don't adopt every child that you can, if you're on a foster parent, if you're not out there doing all of the, if you're not fighting the death penalty, yeah. And this whole list of things, if you're not doing all of that, then you're not morally pure in this fight. You're seeing the same charge from there. And as I talked to him about what I just mentioned there with just to start as the beginning of our conversation was you have to look at history. Anytime somebody says they want to do X, my question is, when has X ever been done? That doesn't yeah. mean it can't be done. That just means that we have to recognize that doing it then will be something no one has ever done and will be immensely difficult to do. And when he starts saying, so when in, in, in history in the United States have we ever successfully prosecuted abortion in the manner that you want? It's never happened. There's never, never been a time where a community was willing to jail women and imprison them for murder. You would never get a jury of their peers. You will never get a grand jury. You will have nope. the legal system actually go the other way. The, the, the history on this is they go the other way. They become right. much, much more uh, allowing on this sort of thing. They go, they, they, they do not toughen up and prosecute. They just let it go. And, and judicial indifference is a big deal, not just in abortion. I remember reading an article many years ago where it talked about depending on who who is in charge of the attorney general's office in the United States at any given point, lawlessness in particular areas grows if prosecution decreases. So it's not even just a case of saying if we don't prosecute, if we don't make it illegal, we're not going to be in a virtual vir virtuous. We're not going to be pure. We're not going to be ideologically pure. And by making it illegal, we'll limit it by it punishing murder. What we notice is when the attorney general refuses to prosecute, the evil that that is meant to limit actually prospers and grows. Look so at Los Angeles. Look at Chicago. Look at all the blue state big cities where you have DAs unwilling to prosecute violent crime. What's happening in those cities? Yep. And pornography, it happened there. That was the article that I'd written where it was talking about how child pornography prospers when yep. the prosecution of all pornography is limited. So the more you allow it, because you just don't want to get mixed up into that, you don't want to be that intrusive as a government. The attorney general just doesn't have the stomach to make those prosecutions. You're not going to get grand juries. You're not going to get a jury that appears to prosecute. You're not going to get district attorneys on board with you. And when and, they're... And Go ahead. And there's further complication. Every abortion involves more than a woman. What about the boyfriend yep. that put extreme pressure on her to abort so he can avoid child support payments? Yep. What about parents that, that pressure a daughter to abort? Are we going to prosecute those people for being complicit in the act? Or no, all we want to do, according to the abolitionists, is punish the woman for murder, but all these other people get to walk. You know, they, yep. they talk a lot about we need equal measures and weights. And they cite that scripture as the basis of their view. We got to prosecute women for murder. Well, wouldn't equal justice also mean we prosecute that adult 22-year-old male who pressured a 14-year-old to abort? Uh, yeah. No, they don't talk about that. They only talk about prosecuting the woman. And by the way, it's not inconsistent to say abortion is evil, but the way we're going to apply the law is going to be workable and not yeah. silly. Uh, but a lot of people get hung up that, oh, I have to be personally consistent. No, your job as a pro-lifer is to make sure babies are saved. And you're not being inconsistent to say we're going to outlaw abortion, but the way we apply punishments is going to be consistent with what works in the real world we live in. 
Yeah, and that's the way we prosecute homicide right now across the board. There are different ways to prosecute different levels of homicide. And we we Jay, don't look women who kill their newborns don't always go to prison yeah. or get prosecuted for murder. Absolutely. I'm not it, saying I'm, I'm not, not saying, saying that, that means we justify it. Yeah. But it does mean that, hey, oh wait a minute. Uh we have to be prudential in the way we we approach penalties. You can't yep. just say a one size fits all, but that's what's being proposed here. And by prudential, what we mean is we're, you know, we're trying to save as many lives as we possibly can and to find yeah. a legal approach that will work to limit evil as much as possible. As much and as possible. As much as possible. And, and that's one of the things that when I was talking to that pastor, when he kept pushing back on me and say, you don't think it's murder. Here, here's the problem. It's not that I disagree with you on the moral nature of abortion, because I you know, it's like, pastor, unlike you, I've spent the last 15 years of my life talking about this almost exclusively. This yeah. is all I ever do. Uh, but here's the problem. When you just throw the term murder, you're not thinking through all the different ways that we understand that term and all the different ways that we approach it legally, because I can right. say that I think morally it's murder, but I can also say at the same time that I think the issue of abortion ought to be prosecuted differently than other like premeditated provable murder in front of a jury of their peers. If we cannot get prosecutions of abortionists, if we cannot enforce a law, then the law itself is going to be meaningless. And ultimately, like right. you said, what you're not even going to get that law because right now, clearly, I think everybody who shifted on that, they felt like we had this momentum when Dobbs hit. And they didn't see the, the way the world... I remember one time talking to a philosopher, a moral philosopher, and he said, oftentimes when we're trying to judge the way that the culture is going, we want to see things moving in a linear path. And so that we can look at it and we can say, well, if it's going up, it's going to continue to go up. If, if the pro-life movement's making gains, this is the moment it's going to continue to make gains. So we're going to push harder to get larger gains. And he said, that's just not the way culture responds to things morally. It's an nope. ebb and flow. And they, they yep. react very strongly because they, they don't like something that they see or we're able to get movement. And then they feel the need to resist at that point and push back a little bit. And on, we're in a pushback phase right now. People, we, are. Are, we, got a, we got a place to where we got uh, Roe v. Wade gone, which was a huge deal for us to move forward. And now we have a group of people who have been made deeply uncomfortable about what that means for their neighbor. And they don't want to force views on their neighbor. And they don't want an yeah. intrusive law. And they don't want the government involved. And that's exactly the narrative. I, I've made a cottage industry for about two years there of responding to the New York Times and a Christian research journal. And almost yeah. every editorial that they were writing or every article where they were approaching abortion, they were warning of this incredibly intrusive police state that was going to be looking into pregnancies. That's right. And they're going to be looking into miscarriages. And they're going to be investigating every part of this. This is going to be something like uh, Margaret Atwood's book. I mean, we were headed for this world uh, where The Handmaid's Tale is going to be a reality. And no matter how many times you try to reasonably push back and say, that's never been existent. Even Ross Douthat said that in a recent, not recent, yep. back in December, where he said, look, to some degree or another, you have to recognize that what you're searching for is a utopian in nature. The laws, the world that you want has never existed. And so we're going to have to look for what we can get as we sort through the, the idea of how we limit the evil of abortion through the law. And well, you can't as Lincoln get caught up put it, politics is the art of the possible. Yep. And, uh, you know, you can wish for a perfect world where everybody abides by biblical law, but unless you're a theonomist, you have a more real picture of what is possible in this world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I saw a little video with Thomas Sowell recently, and I actually talked to my son and my daughter about it when we were in college. 
where he talked about the difference between believing that man is good and what we're searching for is a political system that will maximize that goodness, right? That there is a system out there, a political approach to man that will fix everything. And our goal is to find that because man is good. And ultimately, if we can just marry him with a political system that works, then everything's going to be okay. Versus what he saw was a conservative view. And for me, obviously, and you and I as Christians who understand the nature of human beings differently than those who don't believe, we we understand that man is not good searching for a good political system to marry himself to that man is broken by nature uh, and, and then pursuing evil intentionally rebellious. And, and so Thomas Sowell said in that system, then everything is trade-offs. You have to understand you will never get what you want right. because man will be resistant to good, resistant to, to flourishing, resistant to virtue. Uh, and so I, I loved that idea of, because he got a lot of pushback on that when he said that. And even when I was looking at comments of the replay of it, people being angry about the idea that we can't get this perfect world, that Thomas Sowell in that sense is being negative or cynical. So no, he's not being cynical. He understands the Realist. nature of governing human beings. And yep. in that sense, there will be trade-offs. We will never get what we want this side of heaven. That's just not how the real world works. Nope. And especially right now, I mean, think about it, Jay, in Montana, a red state. Yeah. We couldn't even get voters to approve protections for children who survive abortion procedures. I mean, in what possible world are we going to move from that reality to we're going to get people to jump on board prosecuting women for murder here in Georgia with an Equal Protection Act? You got to be kidding me. No, and 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, the other side hid the abortion issue during elections. They're running on it now. And they're, and they're winning. winning. Yep. Yeah. And winning in places where they used to hide from it. In Georgia, they would never mention abortion 10 years ago. Now they're yep. winning elections on abortion. Now they're defeating candidates on abortion. And it's just not, as you say, being prudential and recognizing we have to save what lives we can save. We have to yes, find correct. a way to govern that will limit evil. And limit it as much as we possibly can today. Not ideally what we can do 10 years in the future, but today, what we can get done today. That is not compromise. That is getting done what we can to. You and I talked about this years ago, and I actually wrote a piece on it on the LTI blog where I talked about, we discussed when we make gains in a world that is completely and utterly committed to the principle of this human autonomy to the point that they're allowed to kill other human beings. When we make gains and take back territory, when we when we make the world more affirming of the value of human life, we're not compromising. We're winning one we're inch, gaining. one foot at a time. We're gaining ground. Yeah, we gained a lot and of ground last year. We did, and of course, the other side, the abolitionists say, "Well, we shouldn't, uh, you know, compromise by settling for the lesser of two evils." We're not settling for the lesser of two evils, yeah. Jay. We're lessening evil, as our good friend Kevin Bywater points out. We are working to lessen evil, and that's always a win for us, not a defeat, not a compromise. And actively working. That's one of the things that I found that, and I've tried my hardest and face-to-face. I don't engage people online, but face-to-face, when I've had opportunity to talk to people who disagree with me on this issue, one of the things I've tried to help encourage them is nobody is talking about stopping the fight when we reach some compromised position. That's what we're right. Doing, it's like an island-hopping campaign in World War II. 
We move. We're always coming back for more. That's right. We take ground and then we we move to the next target and we keep moving. And on. by the way, our opponents know we're going to do this, which is why they get hysterical when even a modest bill yep. passes. Yeah. They know our plan or what our plan should be better than some of our people do, sadly. Yeah. But as one writer calls this, it's smash mouth incrementalism. We're not going away. We're going to keep coming back. We're not giving up until all children are protected. But it's not compromised to save those you can while you work for the principle of saving all. And it just so happens to be the way that every major human rights movement in history has been accomplished. Nobody ever yep. got everything they wanted day one. Everybody had nope. to keep working and pushing forward and getting to it. Now, there could be people you could say like William Lloyd Garrison. You could point to him and say, well, he stayed ideologically pure. Although, I, you know, you would argue Frederick Douglass didn't believe so. I and mean, Frederick Douglass, who yep. said that, in his response to William Lloyd Garrison's uh, insults to him for how he procured his freedom, as far as having someone buy his freedom for him so that he could no longer be a slave, Frederick Douglass's response that it's, it's easy for William Lloyd Garrison to take that position. I just wanted to be free, right? Yeah. I, I, it, wasn't, it didn't matter to me how I got here. I just wanted to be free. So for the free man to point out that I wasn't ideologically pure in the pursuit of my freedom, that's a luxury I didn't have. I just didn't want yes, to be a exactly slave anymore. Right. And by the way, speaking of Douglass, he used to critique Lincoln for not going far enough and working too incrementally. But at Lincoln's funeral, he made the point that the president had been right, that his wisdom and prudence had actually been the moral path to take, and it would have been immoral to go the other way. So even an abolitionist like Douglas came around to see yep. that Lincoln's prudence saved the republic and freed the slaves. Yeah, and there's a great book by Oaks about that. I think The Radical and the Republican, where it talks about Frederick Douglass's relationship. And I think they met three times where Frederick yep. Douglass was trying to determine whether or not Lincoln was a racist. I mean, he was intentionally right. trying to determine this man's heart and walked away from it all, as you said, the entire differently approach to him, that he, he was Lincoln's biggest hero, or Lincoln was his biggest hero after the fact, after Lincoln's assassination. Yep. And he propped, and earlier he had called him a, what a, a first-rate, second-rate man uh, was yeah. his, his, his evaluation was prior to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was rough on him. It's, it, but the recognition that this is how we're going to get where we want to get to is by taking ground every chance that we can and then holding on to it. And if you've ever played, I mean, go into a trivial form of it. If you've ever played Risk, you understand how this works. You take a little bit of ground and then you hold it. And then you take a little bit more and you hold it. And being yeah. able to hold it is a big part of taking it. And that's one of the biggest problems of, of political overshooting your cover, like when you overkick your coverage in politics, you go yep. too far, too fast, and you can't hold it. And, and nope. the pushback comes hard and you lose it. And so that's where I think that idea of seeing it as compromise comes from people who believe that once you've attained a certain mark, then you're going to relax. I'm not going to relax, right? Nope. I, you and I have talked about this for years. I am, we are committed to the idea that every human being ought to be treated with dignity and respect. That's right. And even if we won an abortion, it still wouldn't be the end of that fight. We still live in a culture that is largely corrosive to that value. And there's other areas where it has to be addressed. But this well, is here's the most the thing. urgent. Even, even if we abolished abortion today, yeah. uh, we still have the evil of discarded IVF embryos. We still have the yeah. evil of other embryos treated as commodities through assisted reproductive technologies. I mean, was it wrong to ban slavery even though segregation continued for another hundred years? And the answer is no, it was not wrong to take that incremental step of banning slavery, even though African-Americans didn't get full participatory rights in our culture yep. until almost a hundred years later. 
Or Wilberforce and Clarkson and that movement defeated the slave trade before they freed slaves. Like the first yeah, thing was that's you interesting because not... abolitionists say, oh, uh, Wilberforce was not an incrementalist on the slave trade. The slave trade bill itself was an incremental step. And, yeah. you know, let's, let's be real here. So uh, anyway, prudence does not equal compromise. There can be morally sufficient reasons for saying we shouldn't prosecute women for murder. And those reasons need to be answered, not dismissed as, oh, you're just providing cover for people who are murderers and you just want to profit from abortion. Jay, you and I are good enough public speakers that if we wanted to get rich, abortion would be the last topic yeah. we would take up. We could go do self-help seminars and yeah. together make millions but we've chosen not to because we care about this issue. But you know what? When you don't have a good argument, you pound the table. And I guess that's what's been going on here. I had a guy in a plane to D.C. one time when he and I were chatting about what I did for a living. And he said, so you're like a, you sell God. And I was like, well, if I do, I'm not a very good one because I don't make that much money. I, I, I'm yeah. trying to convince people of a, a moral position. And you would be surprised how how poorly that pays. <laughs> but It does not pay well at all. We speak to not, audiences that are broke to organizations yep. that are broke, to students who are broke, and then we take flack for wanting to get rich. Yeah, will you come for free? And if I can, I will, right? It, yeah. It's uh, the, the message matters more to me. And well, the, the uh, idea Although I will say I appreciate the 100 million you're paying me for showing up on your podcast. Yeah, well, this is a first class podcast. We don't mess around. Yeah, there right? you go. I, like, so. I can't get guess the caliber I'm getting if I don't shell out the money. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Well, so second idea, I'll throw this out. And by the way, you can revert back. I'm I'm not trying to draw strict oh, lines no, no, here. Yeah. Uh, inconsistency does not equal refutation. It is very popular in the press today to point out that pro-lifers somehow are inconsistent. Therefore, there goes their whole argument. So, okay, yeah. you say you're pro-life, but what about capital punishment? What about war? What about poverty? What are you doing about all these things? You're inconsistent. You're not pro-life, you're pro-birth. And I think pro-lifers make the mistake, Jay, and you and I have seen this many times, they buy the premise of the claim. They say, oh, well, we do yeah. love women. We, we're doing all these other social programs. When The minute you answer that way, you just bought their premise that they've done an effective job of refuting your argument, and you should not buy that premise. The pro-life argument is very simple. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. You and I know that there's only three ways you can beat that argument. You can beat it by showing it's invalid, meaning the conclusion doesn't follow logically, or you can beat it by showing the argument is unsound, that one or more of the premises is false, or you can beat it by saying terms are used in an unclear or equivocal way. Outside of that, the argument stands. But the secular culture and a lot of our critics want to change the topic and basically say, well, you're inconsistent. Well, maybe we are. Suppose, Jay, you're an inconsistent guy. You oppose abortion, but you support killing in other ways. Even if you were inconsistent, could your argument that the unborn are human and that intentionally killing them is wrong still be sound and valid, even if you don't apply it consistently? And the answer is yes, your argument stands on its merits, not your behavior. And we're in a culture today that has weaponized everything. Everything is the politics of personal destruction. And what's happening is pro-lifers are buying that premise by saying, oh, 
Look at how many pregnancy centers we got. Look at all the help we give to women after they give birth. You can make that point later, but it should not be your first point. Your first point should be to challenge their attempt to refute your argument in a way that is absolutely bogus. Your yeah. argument stands on its merits, not how you behave. And I, I was actually just talking about this with my 14-year-old daughter and just a, we're going through logic right now. And, um, and, and one of the things we discussed was that idea of attacking the human being versus the argument and ad hominem attacks or anything. Anything gets away from the premises and the conclusion. So you, don't, you don't have to even entertain an invalid argument, by the way. I mean, you can just point back right. to them as the argument is not structured in such a way that the conclusion follows. So they need to work right. on it and then you'll address it when they fix that. But, but I was encouraging her with that idea of even when there's somebody that you find genuinely distasteful in front of you that's trying to make a case, do your best to listen to their arguments and to not get caught up on who's making them. Because that's, right. they, terrible people can be right. Horrible yes. human beings can be right on points. Uh, yeah. And, and I've, I've mentioned on other podcasts before, and he's one of my favorite people to bring up, is if we, we like to think about when we talk about the abolitionist movement, people like, um, uh, William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson, the morally upright people. Charles James Fox was actually a member of that as well, and he was widely considered a scoundrel. That doesn't mean he was wrong on the issue of slavery. He was he was absolutely right on the evil of slavery. Right. He just didn't he didn't rely on his moral authority to be able to make that claim for them. And I saw and I how many times I've recently seen where people have tried to make appeals to authority or you know fallacious appeals to authority. I'm right because of who I am. I'm right because of this title that I hold. Uh, you're wrong because of who you are. You're wrong because of these other beliefs that you have. And at the end of the day, I, try, I, I start where you said to start, always. Go back to this one action. I had a young man, at, I think this was at a, like a Tacoa Falls during a Q&A who stood up and said, hey, um, these are all these other things we need to take care of. And if we're not taking care of all of those other things, then we're not being consistent as, as pro-lifers as we approach these things. So, okay. Some of those things are immensely complicated issues that have to do with political structure. It have to do with the best way that we could all, even if we all agree that those are goals that we want to attain, uh, we don't agree on the way that we attain them. And it's not even clear that they're, they're attainable goals. In this particular right. area, I'm just asking you to not kill your children before they're born. I mean, that's, that's right. How does it follow that it's okay to intentionally kill an innocent human being because I'm not taking responsibility for every social evil that's out there? That's right. Or, or why do I have a responsibility to end hunger in Africa or to deal with AIDS in Africa or to deal with, with things that are going on here in the United States first? Why do those have to be dealt with first before you stop killing your children before yeah. they're born? See, one of them just requires all of us to accept that the unborn are human before that they're born and then to adjust our behavior towards them accordingly. I don't need to pass laws, although laws will limit evil. I don't need to make everybody on earth have, operate in a political system that distributes resources fairly without any corruption whatsoever on either the supply side or the distribution side. All I right. need for you to do is to not kill your children before they're born. Just agree That's not right. to do that. And then we can could, together, let's go to problem B, which is maybe more difficult politically to get to. But this is what's interesting, Jay, is that often you can call their bluff. You can say, OK, suppose I agree to fix everything wrong with society. Will you now join me opposing abortion? Yep. You know the answer. It's always no. Always Women no. have a fundamental right to an abortion is what they tell us. OK, that's an entirely different thing. Defend that position. If that right is fundamental, that means no infringement. That means abortion through all nine months. Defend that position instead of hiding behind our alleged inconsistency.
That's right. And and keep that right there at the forefront. Let's let's even if we agree that every one of those things are are important issues that we're going to have to deal with. And I and most of them I do. Most of them as also I agree with you that they're important. Let's right. deal with this one right now. Like not and, not and this 15, is where pro-lifers need to be careful too, Jay. They don't distinguish between the operational objectives of our movement and our Christian ethics as Christian individuals. You as a Christian yep. individual and me as a Christian individual, we'll, we'll care about a lot of issues. We care about sex trafficking. We care about treating the poor fairly. We care about refugees. But it doesn't follow that because individually as Christians, we, we apply our ethic in those areas, that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement have to be broad and inclusive as well. And that's the mistake in logic people make. Yeah, and I, there was a the head of one of the, the a gentleman I used to know is the head of the must ministries in this area that deals with homeless and, and reaching out to them. And he and I went out to lunch one day and we were discussing this a while back. And I said, I'm grateful that you're out there, right? Because the fact that I don't spend every second of my life working on homelessness doesn't mean yeah. that I don't go to bed prayerfully grateful that you are that you are focused yeah. on this, that you're doing this job, that there are Christians out there that God has, has put into this place to take care of this issue and that that's on that's your right. heart. I'm grateful that you're there because I'm just not going to be there while abortion's there. And he responded, likewise. He said, I'll go to bed at night grateful that you're there doing the things that you're doing on this And that's issue. a fair enough position to hold that God has got us slotted into different areas to uphold human dignity. But when you say that you have no right to oppose abortion until you take care of all this other stuff, that's where we have to say, no, we're not going to buy that premise. And one thing that's different that, that people have to keep in mind, and I, this was I was done speaking in Indiana and a young two young women came up to me afterwards and they were asking me, why aren't you on stage talking about sex slavery? If, if you care so much about human rights, why aren't you talking about sex slavery? And I asked them, I said, OK, fair enough. Right. But let me ask you this question. 50% of the population of the United States believe that abortion is a right. At least 50% think it's a good thing or they're fighting for the right, right to abortion. I have never spoken in an audience anywhere in the United States where I would say half the people in the audience think sex slavery is a good thing. We all agree yeah. it's a bad thing. This On this particular issue, the problem is it's a bad thing that half the population thinks is a good thing and is and actively fighting for. And to even add more weight to your argument, our government, in many cases, supports and funds worldwide. I mean, right now, the U.S. government funds abortion overseas, and it's costing millions of unborn lives. And we're, we're promoting it legally, funding it through our budgets. It's not just that our culture is in favor of abortion, by and large. Yep. It's that we're funding it. It's legal. Yep. Sex slavery is not funded, and it's not legal in our government. Abortion is. Yep. And we're not there. Nobody's singing songs in support of sex slavery. They're not making movies no. in support of sex slavery. They're not. The, the culture is not on the side of sex slavery the same way that it is here. There is not a, right. an ideological drive to 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 form the next generation. There are not people coming into and I talk to college students at high levels. There are not people coming into their classrooms, teaching them lessons that are meant to undermine their authority to stand against sex slavery. Everybody yeah. is in agreement on that it's a bad. They're trying to figure out how to fight it. In this particular case, we can't even convince everybody that it's wrong. And that's the thing that we have to do. We have to keep them on this issue. Yeah. I can agree that other things are bad, but let's talk about this bad thing right now. That's what we're talking about. And, and, and the other side did this. I'm sorry, I didn't mean, but the no, other side ahead. did this when we're talking about um, 
we want to talk about the other side, but you saw this during the Black Lives Matter movement. When, when people would respond, all lives matter, people who were focused on that issue right now said, I agree with you that all lives matter, but right now we're talking about black lives. So get back on the point. It's not a an unheard yeah. of approach to how we discuss these things. That's a nope. perfectly legitimate way to approach it. Say, okay, I, I agree with you that all lives matter, but today we're talking about black lives. And the same thing here. That's right. I agree with you. All these issues are an issue that we want to address, but today we're talking about this issue. So stay on this issue and stop trying to distract from it. Well, and I think it's fair to also ask critics, what other issue carries the moral weight of yep. millions of lives taken? I mean, the numbers in abortion are are the Holocaust times 10 just here in the US. Yep. Uh, what other issue carries that moral gravity to it? Tell me what it is. Yeah, I agree these other issues are bad, but pro-lifers are not bad to give greater weight to the greater moral issue. World Health Organization, I think a couple of years ago, had the the total of annual abortions around the world at 40 to 50 million. And I had a I had a young man who who approached me at one of the schools where I was speaking and he said, this actually during Q&A, stood up and he said, I, I, I agree with you that abortion is wrong, but when I vote, I vote on a lot of different issues. And I- yeah. and, and, I said, okay, well, let me let me ask you. It says, if we're going to have this conversation, listen, I will be respectful about it. My main issue is somewhere around 1 million plus human lives lost in the United States every year, destroyed through the act of abortion, somewhere between 40 to 50 million around the world every year. The intentional destruction of human life on the scale of tens of millions every year worldwide. That's number one. What's your second issue? Yeah, there you go. So what what, what yeah. is your morally balancing issue? So just yeah, and, and he's he's had nothing. He just looked at me and said, "I don't know what I'm supposed to say in response to that." That's the point. There's a yeah. moral urgency with the destruction of human life that isn't present in those other issues, and so it's not illegitimate for it to rise to the level of importance that it has to be dealt with first, because we're destroying life, as you said, on an unimaginable, incalculable scale. Well, the number of abortions in the U.S. alone is Yankee Stadium filled 13 times over annually. Yeah. If you want to put a, you know, an image on this, this is horrific. And I get it. Okay, somebody not getting a, a big enough paycheck might be an injustice, but you're going to tell me that's morally equivalent to a baby having its face ripped off? Uh, these two do not equal. They're not sequenced. And this is where our Catholic friends can help us out as Protestant evangelicals, Jay. Uh, I know you and I like to dabble in reading people who do good moral theology and philosophy, and our yep. Catholic friends have perfected a lot of this. They make a very good distinction between intrinsic evils that must always be opposed and what we call prudential evils that may be wrong depending yep. on the circumstances. For example, war is a prudential evil. It may be wrong whether it's a just or unjust war, and you have to look at the factors involved. But rape and murder are wrong on the face of it and must always be opposed. They are intrinsic evils that can never be tolerated. And what people love to do today is lump intrinsic evils with prudential evils into one big stew and say, well, I'm pro-life on these prudential evils so we can overlook how I vote on an intrinsic evil. And that mm -hmm. just won't work. There's not equal moral weight there. Yep. And some some offense, that's a, that's the clarity of that argument is that some offenses are just wrong by nature. Yes. There's nothing you can do to justify it. There will be no moral calculation that can be brought to bear that will make this okay. There are certain right. circumstances where there are things that we can do 
where there is a context within them that changes how we morally evaluate them. And then there's other things that by their very nature are wrong to do to another human being. And there is no calculus, no context, nothing you're going to add to this that's going to make it okay. And it's, it's yeah. important for people to know that those are, that we evaluate those two types of things differently. There are times, and, and that's one of the things we've talked about, even in just the idea when I said homicide, there are justifiable homicide. There's situations where you can kill another human being where the context of it has made it so that it's understandable. If I walked in and a person in my daughter's room last night and, and I heard something and I walked in and someone was over her trying to hurt her, actively hurting my daughter, and I attacked them, and as a result of that, they died in that, the law would evaluate that differently than if I had hunted down that same person unprovoked and killed them. Those are two entirely different ways of understanding. Entirely it. different. Exactly. The idea that abortion can be justified in those terms is 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 not in the Catholic teaching is not possible. This is an intrinsically no. evil act. This is an innocent life that is being destroyed. And even our opponents, as Kate Greasley, I've talked about a lot, uh, pro-choice scholar, even when she talked about if you accept the humanity of the unborn, if you grant the humanity of the unborn, however many harms may be allayed that the unborn may cause a woman through the act of pregnancy. It does not act purport. It does not reach proportional level to destroying their life to prevent those harms. That's that, correct. That if they are human, then they have to be treated as human, and then the abortion has to be treated as justifiable homicide. And there's nothing that they're doing that justifies killing them, killing them in the way that we do through the practice of abortion. So she'll well, say, to, to further like cash that. out this prudential versus intrinsic evil, a general in a just war can foresee the deaths of innocent human beings. Yes, And we understand that he is still justified prosecuting a just war to bring it to a conclusion as quickly as possible, even though he foresees the deaths of innocent civilians. But the difference is he doesn't intend their deaths. That's right. With abortion, we both foresee the death of the unborn and we intend it. And what the Catholic teaching is trying to convey to us here is that when you intend evil, you are in territory that is very different than the people who foresee it but don't intend it. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it, there, there is one point for an abortion. Every, every successful abortion is the destruction of an innocent human life, every single one of them. So, Which is why we define it as the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And this leads us to a point that you and I have discussed. I'm kind of jumping back to, to, to statement number one here, but it's worth it to do it. You and I don't call abortion murder, and there's reasons why we don't call it murder. Yeah. Because murder is understood in the secular culture as a strictly legal term. Yeah. And because abortion is not illegal, when we say abortion is murder, we now have another thing we have to defend. We not only have to defend that abortion is wrong and immoral and evil, we now have to defend that abortion should be called murder when it's in fact legal in our culture. And to avoid that complexity, it's better to just stick to calling abortion the intentional killing of an innocent human being. It is an evil in its own category. We don't have to bring the term murder in and have further work for ourselves. And that that's that's an important point because when I've talked to some people, they they initially when I said that, that I don't, if you notice when I'm talking in front of audiences, I don't use the term murder. I don't use right. the term murder, not because I don't believe in the evil of abortion, but because I understand the loaded nature of that term and what it adds to the discussion and, and, and the confusion that it can add, because I could say that I believe that abortion is murder in the terms of uh, the 10 commandments and that it's in a destruction of innocent human life. But when you talk about murder legally, as you said, it comes with a whole lot of commitments 
that that I feel like confuse the discussion on this issue as we're trying to apply it to the United States today. And so when I say, I was like, let's talk about abortion as abortion right now. Let's figure out how to deal with abortion as the unjust destruction of innocent human life, as the intentional killing of an innocent human life. Let's talk about abortion as abortion right now. And let's not muddy the water with terms that come from, that you may mean morally, you may mean it legally. I don't understand what you're talking about. And it just confuses the discussion. Here's one of the things that, that I have tried to teach my kids over the years. Language at its best ought to be clarifying. We, when, we, when we speak, if we're using language correctly, it ought to be clarifying. Anytime we're intentionally confusing issues with the way that we use language, then we're, we're using language for, in my sense, illegitimate purposes. If the intention is to, be, uh, to befuddle our audience with clever use of language that they can't understand, that's a problem. If I'm using language yep. to be as clear as I possibly can, to have a, a clear understanding of what the subject matter is at hand, what is the issue at hand, then for me, that's why I leave murder aside when I'm discussing abortion, because I want clarity. I want focus. I exactly. want us talking about this one thing, this one act. I don't want us getting distracted about anything else. Let's talk about abortion as abortion. because And this I, is where our colleague Greg Cunningham makes a great point. He says, for too long, the pro-life movement has been shouting conclusions rather than establishing facts and arguments. Yes. When we show pictures of abortion, as Greg says, abortion protests itself. When we shout out the term murder, the culture goes, wait, abortion is legal. How can you say it's murder? Now we have to go back and do more work that we shouldn't have to do. Show the pictures and talk about abortion being unjust killing and you establish facts. Yeah, and another important point to that, by the way, that I've noticed is that when you shout abortion is murder, it's not just the idea of them trying to marry that term with the act of abortion. What they're often hearing is you're calling my sister a murderer. You're yeah. calling my best friend a murderer. You're calling someone yeah. that I deeply love a murderer. And that's going to be a limiter for the ability for them to, to track with you for the rest of the conversation. Because you're trying that's to it. win them over with a good argument to a view that is more affirming of the value of human life. But now they are stuck on your the way that you're categorized, their, their friend, the person they who they like so much better than you. I mean, they don't like right. you at all and they love this person. And now you're casting that person in the worst imaginable light. They're never coming with you. They're never going to get on this side. And, and, and when I pointed this out to a pastor friend of mine who used to be an ally on this issue, but has gone full-blown abolitionist now, he says, well, you just don't trust the sufficiency of scripture. You want to use man-made arguments rather than use what the Bible calls abortion murder. Well, first of all, where in the Bible does it say exactly abortion is murder? That is a deductive conclusion we draw, not something that's stated outright. But that aside, how does it follow that because I want to be wise in how I interact with people that I have a low view of the sufficiency of Scripture? But that seems to be the argument we're getting. That's right. And there, we have to win them over to our side to get things done. I talked on an earlier on an episode, I think that's going to air next week. Uh, I talked about a a college professor who came into a class and was saying because of Dobbs versus Jackson, women were going to lose the right to vote. And when, and one of the things that I objected to that when I was answering it was in order for women to lose the right to vote, women would have to vote themselves out of the right to vote. The way, the way yeah. that it works when you're talking about constitutional amendments, you have to get them on your side in order to take that away. This won't be taken away by sheer force of judicial decisions. That's a, that's a constitutional issue. And in the same yeah. thing here, right? If we're going to stop abortion, it's not going to be done by judicial fiat. It's not going to be done by the force of the government. It can help limit abortion, 
But to limit it as much as possible, we have to convince human beings to not kill the next generation before they're born. That's right. We have to cultivate a society where people are convinced that that is the wrong way to treat human life prior to its birth. And, and that, so that means that affects the way that we try to reach them. And if we decide that we are going to cast them as the bad guys and we're the good guys, we're going to come at this from some ideologically pure position where we hold our ground on the issue of murder. All we're going to do is turn them away because they like their friends who have gotten abortions more than they like us. And well, we Jay, you just murders, have a low view of scripture. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I know. You know really I, I can be difficult to get along with sometimes. <laughs> you know, actually, <laughs> I think our position is actually more biblical in this sense. We aren't limiting God. God has given us yeah. two ways to restrain evil in the culture, people coming to Christ and having their hearts changed through the new birth. But that's not the only way they we can limit evil. God has given us civil law to restrain the heartless, those whose hearts won't be changed by the gospel. And if you read scripture, the number of people who are going to be saved is not huge, it's small. Yep. Narrow is the gate, which means we're going to need a lot of secular people who may not ever become Christians to agree with us on the pro-life view that abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And we've got to persuade those people outside the bounds of Scripture. And that is a criticism that I have heard leveled at us, and particularly me in a conversation with somebody who said, it's more important that they find Jesus than they become pro-life. And it's, well, in yeah. the in the long-term sense, I understand that for that individual, it is more important to them. Number one, I said, I don't believe that promoting a high view of the value of human life into the, into the life of someone who holds a low view of human life is in any way drawing them away from the gospel. I actually believe it's a step towards it. Uh, it's recognizing yes. that there's things that we can't do to other human beings because human beings are a kind of thing that ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And there's going to be conversations that are started, as Tina Whittington and I have talked about at Students for Life, where she uses the term, the, the pro-life argument as a gateway drug for the gospel. So number one, I, I don't see it as antithetical to preaching the gospel, to preach a higher value of human life into our culture, which sees it as something disposable right now on multiple levels. And, and number two, you know, if he's like, all you're going to end up with is a pro-life person who doesn't know Christ. As you just said, I'm not of the view that every American is going to ultimately come to know Christ. I hope that right. they do. I wish that they would, but at some point or another, I need them to just stop killing their kids before they're born. And, and if, yeah. if that's a step in the right direction for me, right? I mean, that's a movement into the direction that we need. Now, if you want to discuss why you shouldn't be doing it, we can get to greater, more in-depth grounding issues that will lead us towards a gospel conversation. But I don't think that I am doing a disservice to the Bible. And, and that's what I that's that's what I find particularly frustrating. Because I asked him, I was like, have you ever read the book 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians? Like, go, go read those back to back. And you will find that Paul makes historical arguments. He makes epistemological arguments. He makes ontological arguments. He doesn't appeal to scripture, like New Testament scripture, because there was no New Testament for scripture for him to appeal to. That's right. He appeals to the reason of the believer to be able to see the truth of God and Christ in their life so that they might find right behavior and right or, and orient themselves correctly towards the Father through the Son. And he doesn't just avail himself of what was written in order for him to get there. He avails himself of the rational capacities of the audience that he's reaching. And so if you can prove that by talking about these things that I'm doing something anti-biblical, I'm open. Talk to me. But if I'm right. not, then, then I don't believe that I'm doing something wrong if you can't demonstrate that it's wrong biblically by appealing to the full nature of human beings, and that includes their rational capacity to bring them to a more moral position with their fellow man. Uh, well, I don't this, see how that's wrong. 
Yeah, it's not. And it leads to all kinds of confusion, including what we see from a guy who I like in a lot of ways, Tim Keller. Tim Keller has written a great book called The Reason for God. I really like it. But Tim Keller's view on abortion is pathetic. He, he says it's wrong, says it's a double injustice, in fact, but he won't preach on it because he doesn't want to turn people away who otherwise might respond to the gospel. And he gives this example of a woman, an ACLU attorney, who visited his church in New York, and she said to him several months later, if I had shown up that first day and seen any pro-life literature, I would have left and never come back. And he says, see, this is what we need to do. We need to just preach the gospel rather than promote moralism and let people evolve toward the right view. Okay, I'm glad she finally came around to the right view and said, I'm beginning to see that abortion is wrong. I'm glad she's come to that. But are we to say that clerical silence in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism? I mean, this is scary stuff, Jay. And getting them to be Christians, by the way, doesn't guarantee that they're going to be pro-life. I mean, I know a lot of people no, who identify doesn't. themselves as Christians who have, been, who have very cleverly drawn out this caveat here for them on this particular issue. And, and much like what you're saying, how Keller approaches it, and that idea that they want to they don't want to unnecessarily cause division. They don't want to upset people, that they're going to be at yeah. peace with everybody as much as possible. They appeal to those types of scriptures. Why, why would I want to distract people from the gospel by talking about this? Well, because... It matters, right? I mean, and I, I, I think uh, Stanley Howarhouse's quote about in a hundred years, if we're known, if Christians are only known as the people who don't kill their children before they're born, or don't and don't kill their grandparents or something like that, then we're doing good, we're doing well. We, but we ought to be known for something, right? I mean, we should we, be. We're countercultural by nature. That's one of the things I've had to talk to a couple of young college yeah. students recently. It's like, look, Christianity is countercultural by nature. We are at our best, by the way when culture starts to define itself away from us, because when culture tries to define itself in the pseudo Christian terms, it's easy for us to get lost in the flow and to, and to yeah, lose right. focus and sight of what we're supposed to do. And when the culture embraces a worldview against us, then we are free to be what we are and what we are ought to be radically different in the world around us. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. I have no right. shame in being hated because I say, through the love of Christ, I have learned that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And I will fight for that first and foremost for the rest of my life, as long as God leads me on this planet. And if you don't like me because I fight for that, I'm good. We'll, we're gonna I'm be good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can live with that. And uh, I'm totally with you that teaching accurately on the pro-life issue opens the gate to gospel conversations. We've seen it happen experientially countless times. Once you establish with someone that there is such a thing as moral evil and showing pictures of abortion can help you do that, then you raise the question of, wait a minute, have I committed moral evil? And if so, should I be punished for it? And of course, any honest person would say, yes, well, we're right there. We're at the threshold of the gospel because yep. we have a solution to that moral evil found in the sacrifice of Christ. So this doesn't have to be an either or, it can be both and, but I am never going to apologize. I'm with you. If I'm known for, hey, I stuck up for human dignity at all stages of life, so be it. If I'm hated for that, that's a good reason to be hated. And the, and the great thing about the way you just phrased that is, is something that's always been important to me is that when, when I became a Christian later in life, and one of the things I always found shocking was how many people who are within the body of Christ see it as an us-them paradigm. It's us and it's them. And, and, they, and I've never struggled with that, I guess, because of the way I came to Christ. There was always a sense for me, no, it's him and it's all of us. 
it, it, he is on the side of righteousness and this, all the rest of us that are caught up in this mess and we are redeemed through him. But, but I can never see myself outside of through him as something different than them. When I'm trying to reach somebody who disagrees with me on the issue of abortion, I have told audiences all over the country, I am trying to reach the guy that I was, the man that I was when I was younger. I am sensitive to the idea that I was so wrong about so many things most of my life. And I want somebody else to care about helping me get right. And you're not going to help them get right by making them the enemy to destroy through sheer force of prosecution and this idea of, uh, and, and going back to that, that's the first point. And the second point being that idea uh, that we're, if we're not doing everything all at once, that we're somehow not addressing the value of human life. I have to I have to put forth this shield of moral, moral purity in order to fight the issue of abortion. I will never be this side of heaven what God wants me to be. I'm aware of that. I'm trying hard, but I am a hard person for God to train and to reach. And I see that in my prayer life every night. And I think I'm okay. And then God gives me some wisdom and I see, oh my gosh, through scripture and, and, and study, I am way off from where I need to be. But if I can't wait for myself to be pure before I start fighting for the people around me, that's just a terrible nope. way to progress through this. There are some things that just have to be opposed and they have to be opposed whether I am, I don't believe I'm the right guy in the sense that when I look at things and I say, should people trust me the way that they do? Should they invite me in to speak in front of their schools? Should they do me? I don't believe I am some elevated human being that has a view of the world in which I should be trusted the way that they do. And because I believe that about myself, I make sure that what I'm saying accords with both scripture and the truth as much as possible. And I try to limit what I, the cases that I make. And I, I don't, there's all sorts of things that I believe that I'm not going to share in front of an audience. But one thing that I will never stop sharing is that every human being ought to be treated with dignity and respect. I don't have to be pure to make that case. I just have no. to be right. Yep, exactly right. Well, third idea, and this one's going to be a free for all because I'm just going to toss the concept out there and not say a lot about it. So we're going right. to... Go wherever you want to go with this. Human rights require human beings. And here's what's spurring this on. We're seeing more and more talk about the whole transhumanist movement. Yes. The idea that we can jettison the race forward to its next stage of evolutionary development and we can become better than we are, a new and improved version. And the worldview idling behind this is the view that progress is always good and we don't need to ask the questions, what are human beings by nature and what yep. ought we do? It doesn't matter. We just go with the science and propel forward. And the argument I want to make is this. If you have no fixed definition of what it means to be human, the fixed rights that flow from that human nature are also not observable and are not, uh, you know, we can't apply them. If human nature is not fixed, the rights that spring from it aren't fixed either, which means you can't have natural human rights or fundamental human rights unless you have an objective definition of what it means to be human. And we're doing all of our biotechnology, all our talk of advancing the race without asking the questions, what do we mean by better and what does it mean to be human? We're just going forward without the moral constraints, thinking that we're going to make ourselves better but we're cutting out from underneath us the very ground of our own rights when we say that human nature is not fixed. Yeah, and, and there's such a, it's, you know, we just recently, many of the, the leaders and uh, as far as the production of AI or, the, or in the, pr the production of technology 
asked for a more signed a, a document asking for a moratorium on the pursuit of these higher level AI chat bots and things that are being uh, that are being developed saying stop just hold up for a second because we don't know how this ends. I was reading Nick Bostrom uh, yesterday a book called yeah. Super Intelligence and he was talking in that book about like we have no idea what the end result of all of this is as we advance towards it. One of the things I have always found interesting is that if you are a human being, and I agree with you that fixed nature, if you are a human being and you're, and you are actively looking to displace humanity with something else, one of the things I find odd about it is that you won't be on the other side of that. There's, there's this sense of, Oh, if I can, and Ray Kurzweil, I think has a representative of this in his transhumanist writing where he, he has this sense that, if I can take this human being that I am and augment them to these levels uh, with with a digital mind or download myself and to live eternally, if, if human beings are a fixed nature, if we have a fixed nature, then Ray Kurzweil, as he understands himself, will not survive that transition. Whatever it is, it won't become, be a human anymore. It won't be. It won't be a human, and it won't be Ray Kurzweil. There's no meaningful right. way to say that he extends for eternity. Some program does. Uh, some data stream does, but it won't be him. And and right. I, I had a conversation, I mean, a decade and a half ago now with a guy at Georgia Tech that was working in a lab that was putting these things. And I said, look, you're, here's the thing. You're betting on that your view of human nature is the correct view of human nature. And he has, you have a low view of human nature. There's no human nature. There's no such thing as humanity. All things are transitional animals. And you just want to see the transition to the next thing. You, they're, they're, um, you're in love with the idea that for the first time in history, there's an animal in existence that is capable of facilitating its evolutionary advancement on its own rational capacities. And then they don't have to wait for the environmental pressures that require everything up the millions of years under the worldview that we're talking about here. Listen, right. but, but if you succeed and if I'm right, so let's just say for the sake of argument, that there's such a thing as human nature, not just that there's such a thing as a spiritual ex existence and that spiritual existence is tied towards God. And even beyond that, let's say that Romans chapter three is an accurate representation of man separated from God. So that in this humanity, I am somehow in tension between what God wants me to be and what I am. And that there's an active grace that exists around us, not just the the salvation grace, but an active spiritual grace that is, that is fighting and resisting my evil nature is best to draw me away from it and to empower me to be something that I'm not. And you create everything that it means to be a human being without that relationship. And they are immediately at that downloaded moment have capacities that no human being has ever had before. And this is where you get into a lot. And there are many writings about this, the malevolent program, this, this AI that comes into existence and is immediately malevolent uh, because it has no, no operational boundaries that we can place on it. And, and one of the greatest AI minds on the planet, which is just published an article about this recently, where he said, what we have is the ability to advance AI without the ability to, to control it, without to give it to parameters, without the ability to, to ultimately morally, and he doesn't use those terms, but that's what he's talking about, to give it moral boundaries, to give it morality. We're playing God well, without yeah. the ability to be able to make moral creatures. Uh, and, 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 and this that is, is where this is where Christians got to wake up. AI is here. It's not going away. Yeah, We're not going to dial it back. And I don't care how many letters Elon Musk yep. signs or what Nick Bostrom says about how we can have parameters. We cannot. It's here. Yep. The question is, is it going to be tethered to any kind of moral principle? And that's really hard to account for in a worldview that says there can't be objective morality. Yep. The AI worldview, right? yeah, 
when you have a, a, nat, a naturalistic worldview that's idling behind this technology and driving the idea that humans can reinvent themselves in the next evolutionary step forward, we don't have a basis or an oughtness for saying we ought to tether this to morals. What morals? Yep. Yeah, Morality is what you, you can do. And you don't have any appreciation. We've talked about this before we did that at the virtual, the summit virtual event where we talked about the idea that if you have a low view of humanity, if humanity is just something to be overcome, then there's nothing about us that you want to take into that next iteration because all you're trying to do is get beyond it. But right. as if you said, if understanding who and what we are is, is, is tied to this nature as human beings. And if we abandon that, if we, if we lose it without having the ability to, to, as you said, to give any moral reference or frame of reference for how we exist, how we get along with the person next to us, how we treat each other, it's, it's a complete abandonment of humanity that they're talking about. There's nothing about this that is the improvement of humanity. Transhumanism and posthumanism is about getting beyond humanity. Uh, and because of that, and that's driven by a very low view of what it means to be a human being. So you're, to your point, that in order to have human rights, you have to have human beings. That's an important point for people to, to think about or to consider in the sense that, and that's one of the things that I've talked to about with naturalists who've brought these objections up when they talk about the pro-life position, when they will say to me, well, I, what if I don't believe in all the things that you do about what it means to be a human? Then I tell them, well, then you've reduced humanity to just, you know, biological beings who exert their will through raw practice of political power. And you have no moral justification for restricting my efforts to try to spread the pro-life view. Whether you think it's correct or not is irrelevant at that point, because there is no right. ought. There is nothing about our existence that requires us to, to, to treat each other in any particular way. I have no duties or responsibilities to you whatsoever in that worldview. And you have no principled way of opposing the views that I'm arguing for. If one of us wins and one of us loses, it's just a, an, a you know, it's just one of those things that the happens. Of the fittest. That's right. It just Here's, happened. Yeah, that's right. And we end up being ruled not by benevolent people. We get ruled by technocrats and politicians who have embraced functionalism as their view of human dignity. Yep. And, and, and that means the next step can't be controlled either, right? I mean, in the sense of, like you said, it's here, it's moving forward. And and I think that is the one point that Bostrom made, and multiple people, not just Bostrom, but multiple people have made about it, is that there, the, the what's going to happen is impossible to predict because we That's have no right. control of it. Once, it. once it gets out of our control and it moves on uh, from that, then we, we have no idea where it's going. He says it'll either be really good or really bad. And he thinks everybody that thinks in between is just kidding themselves. I mean, I, it's either gonna be great for humanity or it's gonna be the end of humanity, but there's gonna be very little you know, in between there, between the two of them. But you can't, yeah. you can't have that low view of human nature and human life and at the same time have moral opposition to, um, to what people are advocating for or arguing for. You're abandoning humanity. You don't see humanity as anything worthwhile saving anyway. And, and that no. to me is such a low view of human that leads to the kind of things that we see around us. Uh, not, not just in the idea of the abandonment of humanity through transhumanism, but using embryos as a means, human embryos, nascent human life being resourced as a way of improving life for more mature human beings around them. Uh, as if, you know, early human life were nothing different than an apple or an orange or anything else. Research fodder. Nature. Research like fodder for research and for us to be able to improve yeah. ourselves. Uh, yeah, it's a, and then the end of life issues that we get into where we look at people as they get older as impediments to our pursuit of our happiness in life. Uh, and so we, we resource get a guy like there. David Pierce that argues that parents should have the ability to choose the enhancement features of their children. 
Yeah. Uh, children are not gifts we receive. They are commodities we construct for our own fulfillment. And they're not individuals to be respected. They, no. they, they live for us. And you see that in so many different ways already in our culture, where as I have grown up with kids who are very active in sports and you have, you had sons play football, right? You know, when you stand on the sidelines, a difference between somebody that is a parent who is just loves watching their kid flourish and have fun in pursuit of physical excellence on a field and some other parent where that child is serving some purpose for them. That they, yeah. that, and, and the way that they see that, that child doesn't exist as an entity in and of itself. It is in some way an extension of that individual and their will, their will is being poured out into life of this kid who is just miserable. Now I can remember my son having to comfort other players on the field in lacrosse because their fathers were just following them up and down the field, screaming at them because their kid wasn't an individual human being that was enjoying this sport and having fun playing it. What they were was an extension of some lost dream of the father. And, and, yep. and, and so when you lose that ability to see individual, when once we start commodifying human beings and we treat them like mini Coopers that I can go online and say, well, I would like blue eyes instead of brown and I would like darker skin instead of light and maybe blonde instead of brown hair and, and try to genetically structure them like they're a product that we're buying, then we have failed them already because they will that, that human being will never live in a world where they don't understand themselves as existing to satisfy the expectations of the generation that came before them. That's and, and, exactly right. It, that's, this is what happens when we say bye-bye to human nature, because now we're no longer judged by, are we flourishing according to our nature? We're judged by the expectations of the technocrats and the politicians who will rule us based on their functionalist premises. And you were designed to make your parents look more impressive because my kid advanced farther and faster. I, I can remember, I mean, and we see that on lower levels all the time and that corruption working in when you're talking about even today, like I, I remember people bragging to me when my kids started walking at six months, eight months or whatever. It's like, you know, they're all going to be walking sooner or later for the most part. It's, it's really not that big a deal, right? And, and the, the window that your kids started walking earlier is not that big a deal. But, but no. the, the kid is, exists to bring me glory. Uh, and, and, and so that's the only reason you would want to be able to, to, to design them that way so that they can satisfy your desires for what they're supposed to be. And there's a great book and I will link it underneath this where it was an argument that was written. And I, I wrote about this for Sarah J about a, a pro-choice or secular argument for not killing children with Down syndrome before they're born. And what, what I thought was great about it, even though there was, there was obviously places where that author and I parted ways. What I thought was great was he had a chapter where he discusses the idea of one of the things that happens when you find out that your child has Down syndrome is you mourn what you thought they were going to be. You haven't lost anything. Your, your child is what they were. And right. that, that is all they're ever going to be. But you had an idea about what your child was going to be. And he even brings up this point. For most of it too, it's not even just the loss of the ability to function in this world. There's a loss of something like a white collar success story throughout all of this. That there was, there was going to be business or success or, or, or this idea of what my kid was going to be and how they were going to flourish at the highest levels. And when I found out that my child has Down syndrome, uh, what I found out was they would not be this elevated view of what I thought my kid was going to be. And he talks about the process of mourning that loss. And for him, who had a child with Down syndrome, coming to terms with what your child is versus what you wanted them to be. 
and, and the idea that we would destroy them for not being what we wanted them to be to him and to all people who are reasonable, I think, on this particular issue is, is horrifying. But we see every parent, I think, struggle with that to some degree or another because our kid is who they are. And, they're, and they, as they grow and mature and get older and they express their individuality and we give them room to do so as parents, we let them to become the human being that they are, recognizing that we are given stewardship of them, not ownership of them, and they're not our property. They're individual human beings in and of themselves pursuing their own destiny in this world. Yep. It can be challenging, right? That's the part of the challenging part of parenthood is letting go and letting them. My dad, as a joke, and I'm going to turn it over to you again after I get done with this. No, my dad, you're good. My dad one time said, he, was, he said, I, I, wish, I hope cloning comes before I die because I want to be able to clone myself. And then he said, I want to leave them to you to force you to raise me. <laughs> and and, and uh. I laughed. I was like, dad, that's kind of a weird, like evil thing. So my dad and I had a lot of differences with each other. I said, I, I appreciate that. But you understand that even the clone of you wouldn't be you. It would be an individual human life that would exist that's from right. the moment that it comes into existence. And it would, it would interact with the world differently. And it would have different parents that you have and different siblings that you would have. And you would not be able to make a clone of yourself to continue your existence. If you made a clone of yourself, it would not be you. It would that be view only works on a naturalistic worldview that says we are nothing more than synapse firings and yep. biochemistry and physics in the brain. Yeah, that, that we, can, we can make ourselves something. And, and as long as I can just pattern, make a new pattern. But even there, yep. you see the naturalists resist that. Because I, I think you can go back to Stephen Gould's writings about how he thought about um, what he called uh, punctuated equilibrium or the jerk theory yeah. of evolution. And he said, if you roll the tape back to a certain point and then start it over again, it will never go forward the way that it did the last time. If no matter how many times you roll it back, if you're able to roll it back, it will never go forward. And I do think that there's something there to be taken from that way of thinking into understanding human beings. Even if we chart, like you said, the synapses, the groups, if we, if we go through and we're able to map out the human brain as it exists today, my brain, and then we were able to duplicate that or replicate that into another body, it's still, from the moment that you press go or press play on the tape, it doesn't play out the same way because nope. it is still, as we understand it, a unique human life uh, that exists in its own right and has its own nature and will pursue things differently based on the environmental it finds itself in and the people that's involved in. And, and yeah. You know, I have to chuckle at, at the gigantic conflict that is brewing on the secular side of the ledger. On one hand, we have a very dominant naturalistic worldview that says we are nothing but genes and biology. On the other hand, we have the whole body self dualism, philosophical, yeah. metaphysical view that says I am not my body. I am my thoughts and my desires, which are inherently immaterial. And so now you have one worldview saying your identity is wrapped up in physics and chemistry. You have another worldview saying, no, it's wrapped up in my desires, principally my sexual desires, and that my identity is grounded in that. And these two worldviews are going to end up having it out. They're going to end up duking it out. It's going to be a fun fight for us as Christians to watch. And there's a, there is a point where right now there, there's some cooperation there because as one person said, any stick is a good stick to beat Christians with. Right. And so there's a sense for them that there is some cooperation because they're working against uh, a common enemy, but you're right. I actually did a three college tour on um, in the fall last year. And that was the thing that I, one of the things I talked about what you just discussed exactly the idea of there's a view of human beings that were meat machines uh, and, and what it entails there. 
that there, there is no such thing as mindedness. There is no mind. There is no spiritual aspect of human beings. We are just, we're machines. living in a world, machines that live and we react to the physical world around us. We are determined. We're biologically determined beings. And then you have the, that psychosexual view of human beings where I am what I think I am. And that's all that really matters. What I am psychologically is my true identity. I am only that. And my body has nothing to say about that, which in and of it's itself mere is matter in motion. That's right. And, 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 yeah. I, and I can will or I will over that uh, over my biological system, what I actually am. And, and everything has to, to come to bear that comes that, that has to agree with that, or that view of myself. And that well, not only do you have to express that everyone around you has to affirm it or they are objectively evil. Yeah. And uh, so you have a new objective moral principle and is thou shalt affirm me no matter what. Um, yep. And that that view, that conflict that is coming is going to be very interesting to see how that plays out because you cannot have it both be true that I am my body and I am my mind only. One of those two is, and this is where the Christian worldview is so superior. We can see human beings as a dynamic union of body yep. and soul. We're not one or the other. And it makes sense of even when you talk about individuals who are, genuinely struggling, struggling with dysmorphia, that doesn't make any sense under the view that I am only what I consider myself to be or believe myself to be. But it does make sense in this dynamic union between the two, because if there's a tension between how I understand myself and the body that I'm in, then I recognize that they both are realities that must be dealt with. And the tension right. comes from those two being opposed to each other, that that tension has to be settled or resolved in some way. If I am only yeah. what I believe myself to be, what I am materially doesn't matter anyway. And so the doesn't tension matter. That, that, they, that, that we hear about doesn't come to, doesn't have, that shouldn't matter at all. Because if I, all I am is what I am here, then what I am here as far as biologically doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter what way I express myself because I exist psychologically as something. And that's the real thing, not this body. The only way that tension that we hear expressed and in, in extreme ways, we talk about people who kill themselves because they can't resolve this tension. Makes any sense is if both matter, if they're both yeah. important. That's the only way that that makes any sense. Exactly right. I, and of the two, I actually think the latter one is getting getting more dominant. Yes. The body self dualism is now the more dominant view. What Carl Truman calls expressive individualism. I am who I decide I am, and my identity is wrapped up in my desires. And my body has no intrinsic purposes, and I am not accountable to fulfill any of those intrinsic purposes. It's mere fodder for me to, re you know, manipulate any way I want. The real me is my thoughts, my desires. Yep. And the tension that between those parties, it, it goes back to that idea of that every every society has to have an organizing, a shared organizing principle. Uh, and, right. And. And we don't really have one any longer. No, <laughs> and, and, and it'll have to be fought out in order to sustain any workable society. I, you know, I said that years ago when certain things were going on, and I was asked during a Q and A about some of those things. Like, look, there, I, I, I hear these celebrations of the people who have a different understanding of what it means to be human going on, and I get why they're happy and what they think they're going to ultimately get out of this. The problem is that a society built upon the principles that they're trying to build it on just cannot sustain itself. It, it just it it's cannot. Just, There's no shared fixed standard for for human beings or the rights that flow from our nature. 
That's right. And sooner or later, they'll come back. Sooner or later, they're going to have to come back. If they want to have a, a, yep. a lasting society or something that can endure through any kind of time, something that has some sort of stability, they're going to have to come back to first principles. They always did. And by the way, we, we should have learned our lesson with the French Revolution, which sought to throw off all front or first principles. Everybody yep. that initiated that revolution went to the guillotine yep. from Robespierre on. And the, these things consume themselves. The question left is for us is, will we be around when it does? That's right. Yeah, and to step and to sometimes just step back and let them go after each other a little bit and, and not try to get mixed in where I have no... That, that's the great thing about going back to, I think, having a focus on what we've talked about today in the sense of the value of human life. This, is, this, this all ends up being pretty simple for me when I wake up in the morning. And setting aside just my commitments to Christ, which I can't really fully ever set them aside, but just understanding in the sense that I wake up in the morning and I have one idea that fixates me, how we treat each other as human beings. And that, right. that one of the things that led me to, to God through all of that, out of my atheism into Christianity, was dealing with the idea that there are things that we can do to one another that are wrong. I, yeah. I, I didn't know that there was anything right. That was not the first thing that I came to. I didn't initially think that is the right, we should nurture each other. We should love each other. We should take care of each other. That wasn't my first realization. What I knew all the way through my soul was that there are things that we could do to one another that were wrong. That was obvious to me. It was more obvious to me that there were wrong things that we could do, to, objectively wrong things that we can do to other human beings than anything else was in the world around me. I knew that more than I knew anything. Other human beings yeah. shouldn't be treated like that in this situation or like that in that situation, which ultimately leads us back to the, the discussion of abortion and why it's easy for me to stay on task when we have these distracting conversations where people and all the distractions you brought up today, when they come to bear on the conversation, it, for me, it's easy. Abortion is an action against another human life. And I'm just trying to convince as many people as possible to stop doing that action so that we can save what lives we can save. I understand that That's we will right. never live in a perfect world. I understand that we will never be able to address all of the things that we need to address in this world. I understand that I will never be the perfect vessel for that message, but at least I have found something that I can sleep at night. When I go to bed, what did we do today? We went out and we tried to convince as many people as possible to treat other human beings with dignity and respect. Uh, and that's, yeah. that is the place where we can agree on a foundational beginning of how we build a society. You treat me with dignity and respect, and I'll treat you with dignity and respect. And I understand that an inclusive view of human value, which Christopher Kayser likes to use that term, and I think Nancy Pierce uses this as well, a, a, an inclusive view of human value. I understand that an inclusive view of human value is going to bring to bear some tough situations where we have to endure things for the sake of the other people around us. I get that. But it's a yeah. better view of human beings for all of us as far as going forward and building the world around us. Well, if the Nazis put a gun to your head and say, shoot your mother through the brain or we shoot you, you endure the evil rather than inflict it. And that's yeah, right. that's a choice, but you don't have a third alternative at that moment. You either are going to suffer evil or perpetrate it. That's right. And you of human dignity certainly will have some hard to swallow moments, but you're right. It is a better worldview than the one that says anything goes here with how we treat humans. And enduring and suffering for the purpose of communicating the message of the value of human life is what gives that message power to endure to the next generation. That's right. It's, it's, it's not just clever arguments and it's not just the way that we phrase things. It's when, when they talk about if you're inconsistent, 
you're you're not. It, it, I agree with that, right? The incons- inconsistency is not a defeat for defeater for our argument. But we do also have to recognize that the choices that we make during life communicate everything to the world around us. I mean, that's a they very do. Christian perspective. And so when they, I think that when they say you're being inconsistent because you're not solving every problem, I'm being completely consistent. I recognize that I couldn't possibly solve every problem. And when I recognize one problem is morally, more morally urgent than others, I devoted as much as my spirit to it as I possibly can, even when that means not being with my family, who I love far more than everybody else I have to go talk to. And so my life demonstrates at least hopefully the importance of the value of other human beings in it, particularly since I am focusing on the most urgent question right now, because this is the one area where I know we are killing millions of human lives every year. And we have to get this one. We have to focus on these intrinsic evils. They take precedent over other things. And uh, there is no other evil. I love the question you put to that student. Okay, what's the other issue that should be second, you know, here? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a very good thought-provoking question. It forces them to understand that not all evils are the same. And Christians fall into this too, Jay, because they say, well, sin is sin. The Bible does not teach that all sin is morally equivalent. It that's does right. teach that we all have the same human nature that is a sinful nature. We share that in common, but the acts that spring from that sinful nature are not morally equivalent. There is a difference between stealing a pencil and shooting you through the head just because it's fun. That's right. Not yeah. that it would be fun. When they but say all you get sin is equal, right? They'll tell you all the time. All sin is equal. It's all sin. But the, all of it is equal in one way. It's, it's sufficient to condemn me or to judge me. Right. But it's, it's not really equal. You can't honestly believe that lying to your mom about where you were yesterday is equal to the genocide of Jews through Hitler's Nazi Germany. Those are or not shooting your mother because you don't like the question she asked you. That's right. Yeah. yeah. N- nobody believes that, right? I mean, nobody no. genuinely believes that. It's just a rhetorical point to try to, and oftentimes it's, it's meant to try to give us room to do the things that we want to do. Most of the most of the most confusing conversations I get into are people just trying to excuse things that they want to be able to do within a that they know that they shouldn't, or right, that gonna, they don't want to have to talk about. And they want to relieve themselves of responsibility. Well, sin is sin. I don't need to talk about abortion. I really ought to be focused on, you know, just helping people get saved because all sin is equivalent. Well, that that doesn't work. I'm going to give you the last word in a second, but I want to say one more thing on why what you just said, because I get it. I get what they're saying. I get why they don't want to talk about it. And this is why I say I get it because for the first, I don't know, um, 10 years of my Christian life, I was able to be positionally pro-life as I moved towards away from being pro-choice as an atheist and a Christian. I I started adopted personally holding to pro-life views, but it was when I confronted it, when I had all of it in front of me and I was forced to confront it, that I became convicted that this issue required more of me as a moral human being than I was giving it. So I, I, and, and that conviction did not make my life easier. It made my life better, but not easier. And I yeah. understand the person that is standing in front of me that under, there's a reason why one of the first prayers I ever said as a Christian, when I became a Christian was God, I don't ever want to talk about abortion because the second I became a Christian, I was smart enough to realize that human beings were not what I thought they were when I was an atheist. And that issue may become something I don't want to have to look at. I don't, I don't want the, the accountability that's going to hit me when I stop and reflect on that issue. And for people right. who are, are personally or positionally pro-life, 
I understand why they don't want this in front of them because when it was in front of me in all of the gory details, when I had, when I finally put it on a table and read about it and considered it and thought about it, I was faced with a realization that if I genuinely believe human life has value from the moment it comes into existence and what's happening to the unborn is happening in the world around me, I have to do something more than what I'm doing. If I want to consider myself a moral agent in this world, I cannot allow what's happening in the world to happen around me without saying and doing more to try to stand against right. it. Morality and requires me to do something more. And so I get the hesitation for wanting to hear about it because they, I think that for many people, not everybody, but for many people, they probably intuitively understand that as long as they don't have to look at it, they can excuse themselves for not having to have a voice in it. And that if they're convicted of it, they're going to have to, to make some, some adjustments to the way that they live their life and approach this issue. And this is why the pro-abortion side fights the use of abortion imagery so strongly. They know that these images convey moral truths that people would rather not have to face up to. It's why you and I use these pictures. We're not manipulating people. We're using something that conveys truth better than words ever could. Yep. And Mark Harrington just recently was at a, a school, or his Create Equal group was at a school, and I can't remember if it was VCU. No, not wasn't because that was Kristen Hawkins. It was Marshall. He posted online they were Marshall, and and the the comments I thought were telling. When you say that the the images have power, right? When I read the comments after they posted some of the film, and some of the pro-choice people from Marshall were were commenting on his Instagram page, their comment was the 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 pictures were fake. They were fake. That was the, the recurring comment, right? These are fake pictures. Yeah. Why do they have to insist they're fake? Because if they if they admit the reality of them, they have to admit the brutality of it. They have to exactly they have right. To come face to they're not saying that the pictures didn't move them. They're demanding, they're insisting that they're fake. Because if they're real, then even they have to recognize that this is something horrible that's happening. And of course, my comeback is always, what do real abortion pictures look like then? Yeah. And of course, yeah. they never have an answer. Yep. You know, okay. but yeah, you can, when you, when you can't no. defeat an argument, you dismiss it by calling yep. it a name fake. Yep. It's fake. It's fake. These can't possibly be real. You're trying to, you're trying to, right. to move our hearts with fake images. If, if your heart's yeah. being moved, it's because you recognize the evil of what you're seeing and you're assisting it's fake because you don't want to come to terms with the reality of what it is, because that would mean we would have to change the way that we live our lives. This and is where what, tactically I love to walk around with this book, Abortion Practice by Warren Hearn. This is their hero, not mine. That's and right. he describes in excruciating detail how to dismember a living human fetus. And you've seen the material. You know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And uh, these are their guys being honest about it, not, not us faking anything. Abortionists tell on themselves, man, all the time. I've, I talked about that on two different episodes right now. The abortionists will tell on themselves. You, no matter how much you want to make them out to be some heroes of the abortion of the pro-choice view, they're going to tell on themselves. They're going to inform you yep. of what they actually are sooner or later. Just give them enough That's room right. to talk. Okay, you're, you get the last word here. Well, hey, I think I've uh, we've had a great conversation, and my, my last word is we got to get together and hang out some. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, we got to get on that. I thank you so, so much for uh, coming on. Glad to be on, Jay. You're doing great work. Your knowledge is great. I appreciate having you in the trenches with us. I appreciate the moral clarity that you bring to things all the time. You, I, I, I hold to this. I think you are the best teacher of the pro-life position that I have ever seen. 
You know, and and I, I told you that when I first came to that realization. And I'm so excited, by the way. The second edition of Scott's book, The Case for Life, is coming out soon. So be look, go to Amazon, pre-order it. it. It's not out yet, right? It won't be out till August 2nd. Okay, and that's August because 2nd. the author delayed getting his revisions done on time. <laughs> oh, Today I have learned something. Here's the last word. It is much easier to write a book from scratch than it is to go back and puzzle piece an existing one. Well, what, what I have seen of the second edition, I think, is is a marvelous addition to the literature on this particular. I love it. So I'm very excited about it. Pre-order The Case for Life today. Thank you, Scott, for coming on. Have a great day. Thank man. you, Jay. Great to have you as a colleague.